Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. prayer. Water of life, wash us, refresh us, buoy our lives that they may be instruments for good. Amen. And please be seated. This morning, we begin a new sermon series titled Theological Imagery. About this series, we write, the Bible is full of ideas that blossom from germination in Genesis to fruition in Revelation. At times, these ideas are grounded in metaphors that can be traced throughout the Bible. With this in mind, this sermon series will explore the development of a few core metaphors by paying particular attention to water, breath, fire, and tree as we see them throughout the scriptures. Our hope for this sermon series is that the goodness and beauty of biblical imagery rouses our imagination and nurtures our human flourishing. A sermon series on theological imagery. Perhaps a more helpful way to think about this sermon series is to think of it as a series on symbols. A symbol is a thing that represents or stands for another thing. For something else. In other words, we see a symbol or we think of a symbol, and it, if it's truly a symbol, then, then it rouses some things inside of us. For example, a ring on what is called the ring finger, more often than not, symbolizes that a person is married. Or, for example, a flag. It's a symbol of nationality or, at times, particular ideologies. And then, for example, a rainbow, it's a symbol for LGBTQIA plus pride. Or, for example, uh, a circle, right? A circle with a line down the middle with two small angled lines out is, is a sign for peace. The symbol represents, hopes for, cherishes peace. You see, symbols can be powerful because they instantaneously gesture toward robust ideas that can give shape to how we see this world. And in Christian life, there are a handful of symbols that stand out. In ancient days, an anchor was a Christian symbol for resolute faith. That was what what an anchor stood for. In ancient Christian days, the dove was a Christian symbol representing the Holy Spirit. In ancient Christian days, the fish was a Christian symbol representing five Greek letters that stood for Jesus, Christ, God's Son, Savior. Now, whether you're familiar with those symbols or not, today most people are familiar with bread and wine, which are Christian symbols for divine self-giving. And of course, there's the cross, which is a Christian symbol for imperial violence, 
that's subverted by divine solidarity with all who suffer. And so a symbol at its best is seen with our eyes or thought about in our brain, and it immediately conjures up ideas of meaning for us. And that's exactly what we hope for this series. We want to explore a few biblical ideas that can be grounded in our community as symbols. Symbols containing deep theological meaning for our lives. This morning, we're going to consider water. Next week, we'll consider breath. In two weeks, we'll consider fire. And in three weeks, we'll consider tree. Water, fire, breath, and tree. These are nouns that are part of our daily vocabulary, but they're also common to our human experience. We regularly see and feel and drink water. We regularly breathe in and out. And at the two extremities of life, well, we have a a baby gulp in its first breath of air. And at the end of life, we have a dying person gasping out their last breath. We make fire and cook with fire and warm ourselves with fire. And trees, well, we climb trees. We pull fruit off of them. We nap underneath them. And when their leaves change, which is just beginning to happen, we marvel at their radiance. And so it's our hope for this series that as we explore these nouns in the Bible, that when we come to hear words like water, breath, fire, and tree, or when we experience water, breath, fire, and tree in our daily lives, our hope is that these images would function inside of us like symbols, symbols that rouse our memory of their deep and penetrating goodness as we see it throughout the scriptures. Water. Water is pretty weird if you think about it. It's a transparent, tasteless, odorless, and nearly colorless chemical substance. That's water. And yet, it's a primary component in most living organisms. Water. It's vital for all known forms of life, despite providing neither food, nor energy, nor organic micronutrients. Water. It exists in a number of natural states. Water forms precipitation in the form of rain and aerosols in the form of fog. Clouds consist of suspended droplets of water and ice. When finely divided, crystalline ice may precipitate in the form of snow. And the gaseous state of water is steam or water or vapor. Water. It covers about 71% of the Earth's surface. Water. It serves a number of essential functions for human survival. I'll just list off a few. Water is a vital nutrient to the life of every cell. Water regulates our internal body temperature by sweating and respiration. The carbohydrates and proteins that our bodies use as food are metabolized and transported by water in the bloodstream. Water assists in flushing waste through our bodies. Water acts as a shock absorber for the brain, spinal cord, and fetus. Water even forms saliva, which is essential in the beginning process of digestion. And one last fact about water. Our human bodies are made up of 60% water. Think about that. In case you're wondering how that breaks up, our brains and hearts are about 73% water. Our lungs are about 83% water. Our skin is about 64% water. Our muscles and kidneys are about 79% water. And even our bones are a watery 31%. 
It's as if every human is a unique shape of water. Water. It's no wonder ancient people dance for it. Young people play in it. Poets marvel at it, and religious people bathe in it. The great German novelist Hermann Hesse in his book Siddhartha explains that flowing water teaches us humans an important lesson, which is life is impermanent, always passing by. In his book Leela, the fantastical 1970s philosopher Robert Persig is floating down a river in a boat, and he notices that water carries away all that is undigestible in the earth. The glorious poet Mary Oliver writes, At Blackwater Pond, the tossed waters have settled after a night of rain. I dip my cupped hands. I drink a long time. It tastes like stone and leaves and fire. It falls cold into my body, waking the bones. I hear them deep inside of me whispering, Oh, what is that beautiful thing that just happened? And G-Love and Special Sauce sing, Let I Cool You. We have been dancing so long in the winter's freeze and the summer's drought. We survive. We belong. Let us to sing together water over pebbles. And I'll be by your side forever. You see, the lesson of water, the lessons of water are many. We've only just begun, and we've already observed that water is necessary for all living organisms, that we humans are the shape of water, that flowing water can carry away filth and teach us about the impermanence of life, that cold water in the morning can wake our weary bones, and that water can, like a trickling creek over pebbles, celebrate human intimacy. And we haven't even considered the Bible yet. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read these words. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And so in the beginning, the waters uh, represented chaos. And throughout the scriptures, this, the, uh, the sea, the ocean, uh, continues this theme. But often, very often, the divine engages the chaos in order to preserve life. For example, Noah's Ark, which is a story about the preservation of life atop the chaotic sea. Or, for example, uh, Israel fleeing Egypt and passing through the Red Sea, which is a story about the preservation of life in the midst of empire oppression. Or, for example, a storm at sea resulting in the hard-hearted Jonah being thrown overboard but being caught in the mouth of a big fish, which is a story about the preservation of life, even a hard-hearted and rebellious life like Jonah's. And this, you see, is why by the end of Revelation, in chapter 21, verse 1, that we read these words, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, of course, this isn't literal. The point is that the sea, a place throughout the Bible that has represented and been known for chaos unless God intervenes, at the end of our sacred story, the sea is no longer causing its chaos. That's the point. For even the chaotic sea has been made calm so that all of life is preserved. 
the preservation of life. That's one meaning for water that we find in the Bible. And then there's this whole watering holes and weddings motif that we see in the scriptures. I'll just walk you through it briefly. In Genesis chapter 24, Abraham's son Isaac is not yet married, and so he sends his servant back to the land that he grew up in. When the servant arrives in the land, he stops at a watering hole and helps a woman named Rebekah water her flock. Within the chapter, Rebekah and Isaac are married. It's pretty quick. Moving forward to Genesis chapter 29, Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, who found one another at a watering hole, this Jacob flees to the land that his grandfather came from, when, lo and behold, he too arrives at a watering hole. He helps some shepherds water their sheep, and within the chapter, similar to his parents, he is married. Moving forward to Exodus chapter 2, Moses is in the wilderness when he sees the seven daughters of Midian trying to water their animals, but they're stopped by some shepherds who drive them away. Moses intervenes, waters their flock, and within the chapter, he marries Zipporah, daughter of the priest of Midian. Anyone noticing a pattern here? If you're looking for a partner, go to a watering hole. If you don't want a partner, stay away, far, far away. Uh, fast forward, John chapter 4. Jesus approaches what we're told is a well, and the well has a name, Jacob's Well, which is intentionally trying to rouse our memory of Genesis chapter 24, where Jacob meets his future partner. And at this well, at Jacob's well, Jesus meets a Samaritan woman. Now, Samaritans and Jews weren't really supposed to spend time together, especially a Samaritan woman and a Jewish man. But no matter, Jesus and the Samaritan woman have a conversation about water. And being devout Bible readers, we know what's supposed to happen, right? Jesus is about to get married. <laughs> of course, he doesn't. But they do have an interesting conversation about human and divine union. In fact, Jesus tells the woman that every person, even Samaritans like her, are able to drink the satisfying water of God, for it doesn't just belong to the Jews, it is for everyone. Union. Human union at watering holes and human in union with the divine at Jacob's well. That's another meaning of water that we find in the Bible. In the Gospels, we see Jesus turn water to wine, celebration, in the Gospels, we see Jesus calm storms, peace. In the Gospels, we see Jesus use saliva to restore a man's sight, healing. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus being baptized. His body was literally plunged into the water, and then it was raised up out from the water. About this, Paul explains in chapter 6 of Romans, Therefore, we have been buried with Jesus by baptism into his death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In Ephesians chapter 5, we read that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so you see, baptism by water refers not only to death and resurrection, every person's death and resurrection, but, but it also gestures toward the reality that we all belong in God's human family. And so water in the Bible, it preserves life. Water in the Bible, it nurtures human and divine union. Water in the Bible marks celebration and it makes for peace. Water in the Bible symbolizes death and resurrection while declaring over a dripping wet person, you are a child of God.
You see, throughout the Bible, water is good, so very good that when we arrive at the very end of our story in Revelation chapter 22, we read these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Isn't that a beautiful image? It's a world at peace. It's a world without a sea, for there is no longer chaos. And the water of life, bright as crystal, flows from the throne of God through the middle of the city, available, available to every person to drink, to plunge down into, to float upon, all the while recalling life and union and peace and belonging and resurrection. Always resurrection. Water. You see, it's about so much more than a noun. Water is a symbol. And so when you fill up a glass of water, or when you hike to a waterfall, or when you dip your toes into a creek, or when your naked toddler bursts forth from the bathtub, you know what I'm talking about here? They burst forth from the bathtub and run through the house dripping water all over the place. Or when you bask in a person being baptized, these moments of water, I hope that they might move something inside of us. I hope that moments like these might wake something up. I hope moments like these might open us to the goodness of life and of God and of every human being that you bump into, because every human is filled with the same 60% liquidity that fills you. For truly, we humans are the shape of water. In 2017, a movie written by Guillermo del Toro and Vanessa Taylor, directed by del Toro, was released. The movie was a romantic fantasy film titled The Shape of Water. Anyone watch it? it won a whole bunch of awards. And if you didn't watch it, I'm about to ruin it for you. <laughs> Set against the backdrop of Cold War-era America in a hidden high-security government laboratory is a lonely and mute custodian named Eliza. Besides being lonely and mute, Eliza also has trauma marked by some scars on her neck. Eliza has a co-worker named Zelda who is a black woman, and together they discover a secret experiment involving an amphibian man who we might as well call an alien. A lonely and mute woman named Eliza, a black woman named Zelda, an alien living inside of captivity. And then there's Eliza's neighbor, Giles, who is queer. So picture it, if you will. Mute, black, alien, and queer in Cold War America circa 1962. Can you see them? We must be able to see them. Of course, there's a cisgendered white man in the film, but he is far from the hero. He goes by the name Strickland, and he's a government agent who is experimenting on and torturing the alien. For Strickland, the alien is less than human. Of course, less than human, as are Eliza and Zelda and Giles. And of course, sure, their gender and skin and sexuality is all alien to Strickland. Their difference stands out so clearly to him that he can't fathom that they're all at least 60% alike, just different shapes of water. And so this holy trinity of diversity sets out to save the alien, 
Through a wild plan filled with many problems, they break out the alien and flee to a warehouse district built on piers above some water. We pick up the movie where Eliza, who has been knocked out by Strickland, is picked up by the alien, who then jumps into the water. Unable to perceive the shape of you. If you were to watch this film with the subtitles on, you'd see that the word you is capitalized, as if this poem isn't about just a human, but the infinite within the human, the divine inside of us all. The poem at the end reads, unable to perceive the shape of you, I find you all around me. Your presence fills my eyes with your love. It humbles my heart for you are everywhere. You see, it's, it's the divine inside of every person. That's the point. Mute, black, queer, and every single human being that the human majority may try and call alien in reality are diverse and provocative shapes of holy water. And if we could just see it, you know? Like if we could just see it, if we could see every person in the glass of water, if we could see every person in the waterfall, if we could see every person in the creek, if we could see every person in the child running and dancing and dripping wet, if we could see every person in the baptism, then perhaps every shape could be honored. Perhaps every shape could be celebrated. Perhaps every shape could be held and loved and cherished by us all. And that, well, that would truly be a world at peace. That would truly be a world without a chaotic sea that makes us all afraid. That would truly be a world in which the water of life, brightest crystal, flows from the throne of God through the middle of the city available for every person to drink, to plunge down into, to float upon, all while recalling life and union and peace and belonging and resurrection always resurrection. And let's pray. Unable to perceive the shape of you, we find you all around us. Your presence fills our eyes with your love. It humbles our hearts for you are everywhere. Divine love, open our eyes to see you in the shape of every person. May you bring about peace through love because every person is deeply valued and honored. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.